The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Now, tell me what you think. Okay, but I'm not sure you're going to like it. Tell me. I think that this situation with Gowron is a symptom of a bigger problem. The Klingon Empire is dying, and I think it deserves to die. You are right. I do not like it. Don't get me wrong. I'm very touched that you still consider me to be a member of the House of Martok. But I tend to look at the Empire with a little more skepticism than Curzon or Jedzia did. I see a society that is in deep denial about itself. We're talking about a warrior culture that prides itself on maintaining centuries-old traditions of honor and integrity. But in reality, it's willing to accept corruption at the highest levels. You are overstating your case. Am I? Who was the last leader of the High Council that you respected? Has there even been one? And how many times have you had to cover up the crimes of Klingon leaders because you were told that it was for the good of the Empire? I, I know this sounds harsh, but the truth is, you have been willing to accept a government that you know is corrupt. Gowron is just the latest example. Worf, you are the most honorable and decent man that I've ever met. And if you are willing to tolerate men like Gowron, then what hope is there for the Empire? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 27, 2011. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be And in a strange quirk of fate, Robert Vaughn is unable to be with us again today, but fully expects to return next week, so have no fear, Robert will be here next time. Um, Today on the show, we will be taking a look at a very big picture, I guess, on, on pretty well, is the empire dying? Is civilization going under? The thing that brought this to my attention was um, someone sending me an email over the weekend. It was Ivan Kashurik, actually, our um, perennial candidate for mayor who sent me a piece by Mark Stein that just, uh, I sent it around and it sure got a lot of people thinking. And today on the show, we'll be taking a look at Mark Stein's pessimistic view of Western civilization's future, the decline of liberty, the advance of Islam, the collectivist state, censorship, Geert Wilders, the Dutch Freedom Party, the Koran, Danish Free Press Society, Lars Hedegaard, and hate speech laws. Just some of the issues we'll be touching upon today because they all have to do with one another. Now, oh, and of course, 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call to reach us if you want to join us on our, in our show today. And as always, feedback at justrightmedia.org is the place to write for any of your comments, suggestions, criticisms, whatever. And we are always looking forward to hearing from you because sometimes what you write us becomes the very subject of our next show or a, or a future show, of course. Now, back on November 1st, 2010, if you'll recall... Canadian commentator Mark Stein gave a speech about, to about a thousand people here in the city of London entitled, Head for the Hills, Why Everything in Your World is Doomed. And this was a speech focused on political correctness, free speech, and Islam in the West. 
two years earlier, a Canadian Human Rights Commission had just dismissed a complaint filed by the Islamic Congress against Maclean's magazine for a Stein article, which was essentially written on the same theme. And I remember in advance of Mr. Stein's London appearance, London Free Press published an article, October 19, 2010, that said, Muslims stand on record, in which London lawyer Faisal Joseph was quoted as saying, quote, the only killing we'll be doing is with acts of kindness and with charitable acts, and was described by the Free Press as someone, quote, who knows Stein's work from a 2007 human rights tribunal case involving the writer, end quote. His comments to the Free Press were reiterated in the National Post on October 22nd. Now, of course, uh, as we know, the Human Rights Commission lost that case, thanks mostly to public outcry, not, I think, to any major due principles of justice. But despite that, Faisal Joseph was quoted in the Free Press as saying, quote, the mandate of some is to cloak the argument of freedom of speech into the mantle of freedom to hate, he said. And this was in reference to Mark Stein. So I guess he was calling Mark Stein a hate monger. I don't know. Subsequent to media, you know, subsequent media coverage of Stein's appearance was appallingly superficial, referring mostly to his singing a song badly at the speech, talking about his sense of humor, and mostly about his status as a controversial figure. But very little was said about his message, and unfortunately I was unable to attend that speech that particular night, but I heard a lot from people who did. And uh, it is to Mr. Stein's broader message that I want to speak upon and reflect upon today because uh, it's very disturbing, and it's maybe not something all of us want to hear. Interesting, earlier this week, I think it was Monday, CFRB 1010 Toronto radio host Tarek Fatah appeared on CJBK with Steve Garrison here in London, commenting about the Moscow terrorist bombings last week. In response to the question about what we can do to increase our own security at airports in Canada, he concluded, quote, We need to identify the enemy. We cannot fight the Second World War by pussyfooting around with debates like how should we refer to Hitler. There should be no shame in saying that we are a superior civilization and we have enemies who want to destroy us. If you can't say that, forget about security. End quote. And so far, it seems to me very few people have had the courage to say it. One of those has been Mark Stein. And I guess you might call this Mark Stein's lament on Western civilization. I had to really, this is from the new criterion, January 2011, so it's pretty current. It's called Dependence Day on the Erosion of Personal Liberty. And it's, of course, much, much longer than what I will be presenting today. I picked out those sections that I thought were uh, the meat of the whole argument and the lead into the rest of the show today as well. And so this is, this is Mark Stein talking, and then we'll reflect upon this a little later. And he writes, he says, If I'm pessimist, pessimistic about the future of liberty, it is because I'm pessimistic about the strength of the English-speaking nations which have, in profound ways, surrendered to forces at odds with their inheritance. Declinism is in the air, but some of us apocalyptic types are way beyond that. The United States is facing nothing so amiable and genteel as a continental-style decline, but something more like sliding off a cliff. And then he comments that when he used to write for Fleet Street, a lot of people used to criticize him for being anti-British, and he says, no, I'm not. He says, I'm extremely pro-British, and for that very reason, the present state of the United Kingdom is bound to cause distress. 
So before I get to the bad stuff, he writes, let me just lay out the good. Insofar as the world functions at all, it is due to the Britannic inheritance. Three-sevenths of the G7 economies are nations of British descent. Two-fifths are permanent members of the UN Security Council. And, he says, by the way, it should be three-fifths. He says the rap against the Security Council is that it's the Second World War victory parade um, preserved in aspic. But if it were, Canada would have a greater claim to be there than either France or China. The reason Canada isn't is because a third Anglosphere nation and a second realm of King George VI would have made too obvious a truth, usually left unstated, that the Anglosphere was the all but lone defender of civilization and of liberty. In broader geopolitical terms, the key regional powers in almost every corner of the globe are British-derived, from Australia to South Africa to India, and even among the lesser players, as a general rule, you're better off for having been exposed to British rule than not. Why is Haiti Haiti and Barbados Barbados? Decline starts with the money. It always does, writes Stein. Now, of course, that might make you think that he's thinking, talking about, well, you know, money is the root of all evil. That's not what he means. He's talking about debt. Today, the people who have America's bonds are not the people one would wish to have one's soul. Within a decade, the United States will be spending more of the federal budget on its interest payments than on its military. Think about that for a minute. More on interest than on the military. According to the CBO's 2010 long-term budget outlook, by 2020, the U.S. government will be paying between 15 and 20 percent of its revenues in debt interest, whereas defense spending will be down to between 14 and 16 percent. America will be spending more on debt interest than, get this, China, Britain, France, Russia, Japan, Germany, Saudi Arabia, India, Italy, South Korea, Brazil, Canada, Australia, Spain, Turkey, and Israel spend on their militaries combined. Can you imagine? That's amazing. The superpower will have advanced from a nation of aircraft carriers to a nation of debt carriers. What does this mean? In 2009, the United States spent about $665 billion on its military. The Chinese, about $99 billion. So it's about one-sixth. If Beijing continues to buy American debt at the rate it has in recent years, then within a half decade or so, U.S. interest payments on that debt will be covering the entire cost of the Chinese military. Within the next five years, the People's Liberation Army, which is the largest employer on the planet, bigger even than the U.S. Department of Community Organizer grant applications, will be entirely funded by U.S. taxpayers. Britain's decline also began with the money. Again, he's talking about debt. They have our soul who have our bonds, and the baton of global leadership has been passed. One of my favorite lines from the Declaration of Independence, writes Stein, never made it to the final text. They were Thomas Jefferson's parting words to his fellow British subjects across the ocean. Quote, we might have been a free and great people together, end quote. But in the end, when it mattered, they were a free and great people together. Britain was eclipsed by its transatlantic offspring, by a nation with the same language, the same legal inheritance, and the same commitment to liberty. Not likely to go that way next time round. And next time round is already underway. We're coming to the end of a two-century Anglosphere dominance and of a world whose order and prosperity many people think of as part of a broad general trend. 
but which in fact derive from a very particular cultural inheritance and may well not survive it. To point out how English the world is, of course, you know, is a fright, frightfully un-English thing to do. No true Englishman would ever do such a ghastly and vulgar thing. You need some sinister, rootless, colonial oink like me to do it, he writes. But there's a difference between genial self-effacement and contempt for one's own inheritance, writes Stein. Now, you know, it's interesting the point he, he raises here. I brought this up before, you know, about all the differences that supposedly exist between Canada and the United States and Britain. They're very minor in the big picture because these are all one common, quote, culture, one set of values that evolved from a basic concept of individual rights and freedom, which was unheard of in the world before. And it was the English-speaking world that adopted most of these basic uh, um, freedoms and the thing that gives us our ability to have the rights and the freedom to speak and everything that we take so for granted today. So before we continue with this, we're going to take a quick break for a smile, and then when we return, well, hey, we'll frown again, okay, after this. Well, I've been all over this great land of ours, all over the planet, actually. I just want to say we live in the greatest country in the history of civilization. What is this, a fundraiser for Al-Qaeda? I said this is the greatest country in the history of civilization. Thank you. And I don't read the newspapers, but apparently there's some funky stuff going on. And uh, just want to remind you that if you persecute somebody just because they might look a little different, then you are no better than our country's founding fathers. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, the syphilitic, slave-holding, pot-smoking, cross-dressing, male chauvinist pigs who believe that women and African-Americans should be denied the right to vote. And that's just wrong. African-Americans should be allowed to vote. <laughs> what, they shouldn't be allowed to vote? You liberal racist. Of course women should be allowed to vote. We never would have repealed prohibition had it not been for the suffragette movement. That's right, because once you started a vote, everybody said, you know what? I need a drink. <laughs> That's comedian David Feldman on Comedy Central. Uh, interesting point he raises there. You know, even in the humor, he talks about how it was when Merrick was founded and the, is the issue of slavery. You know, this is the country that, that released the world from slavery. You know, they didn't, they didn't invent it. <laughs> they inherited it and then ended it. And this is one of the things that you never really hear and is never stressed in the history of, of, of I guess, the British Empire, if you want to look at it that way. But we're in the middle of talking about, um, um, I guess you'd call it the end of civilization, according to how Mark Stein was looking at it. And we're reading from an essay that um, he wrote just this past uh, January, and, and he's basically called it, you know, the age of dependence, like we're living in an age of dependence, uh, in <laughs> Dependence Day instead of Independence Day. And he writes that there is one aspect of change 
in moral values brought about by the advance of collectivism, and there's a key word, which at the present time provides special food for thought. It is that the virtues, which are held less and less in esteem and which consequently become rarer, are precisely those on which the British people justly prided themselves in and in which they were generally agreed to excel in. The virtues possessed by Anglo-Saxons in a higher degree than most other people, excepting only a few of the smaller nations like the Swiss and Dutch, and that's interesting too, were independence, self-reliance, individual initiative, and local responsibility. The success of reliance on voluntary activity, non-interference with one's neighbor, and tolerance of the different and the queer, respect for custom and tradition, and a healthy suspicion of power and of authority. Question authority before authority questions you. I remember that old statement. <laughs> and he writes, within a little more than half a century, almost every item on that list has been abandoned. From independence and self-reliance, some 40% of Britons receive state handouts, to a healthy suspicion of power and authority. The reflex response now to almost any passing inconvenience is to demand that the government do something. In cutting off two generations of students from their cultural inheritance, the British state has engaged in what we will one day come to see as a form of child abuse, one that puts a huge question mark over the future. Why be surprised that legions of British Muslims sign up for the Taliban? These are young men who went to school in Luton and West Bromwich and learned nothing of their country of nominal citizenship other than it's responsible for racism, imperialism, colonialism, and all the other bad isms of the world. If that's all you knew of Britain, why would you feel any allegiance to queen and country? In fact, I think a lot of that, that attitude has come to Canada as well. And what if you don't have Islam to turn to? The transformation of the British people is, in its own malign way, a remarkable achievement. Raised in the schools that teach them nothing, they nevertheless pick up the gist of the matter, which is that their society is a racket founded on various historical injustices. The virtue of Hayek admired? Ha! Strictly for suckers. When William Beveridge laid out his blueprint for the modern British welfare state in 1942, his goal was, quote, the abolition of want to be accompanied by, quote, cooperation between the state and the individual, end quote, in, attempt, in attempting to insulate the citizenry from the vicissitudes of fate, Sir William succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. Want has all but been abolished. Today, fewer and fewer Britons want to work, want to marry, want to raise children, want to lead a life of any purpose or dignity. The United Kingdom has the highest drug use in Europe, the highest incidence of sexually transmitted disease, the highest number of single mothers. Marriage is all but defunct except for uh, toffs, upscale gays, and Muslims. The statistics speak for themselves. The number of indictable offenses per thousand people was 2.4 in 1900, climbed very gradually to 9.7 in 1954, and then rocketed to 109.4 by 1992. And that's the official increase, which understates the reality. Many crimes have been decriminalized. Shoplifting, for example. Can you imagine? <laughs> decriminalized. And most crimes go unreported. And most reported crimes go uninvestigated. And most investigated crime goes unsolved. And almost all solved crime merits derisory punishment. Yet the law-breaking is merely a symptom of a larger picture. For its worshippers, 
Big government becomes a kind of a religion. The state as church. And this is something I've said from, from day one. The state and church are one, always have been. After the London tube bombings, he writes, Gordon Brown began mulling over the creation of what he called a British equivalent of the 4th, the U.S. 4th of, of July, a new national holiday to bolster British identity. The Labour Party think tank, the Fabian Society, proposed that the new British day should be July 5th and the day the, day the National Health Service was created because the essence of contemporary British identity is waiting two years for a hip operation. A national holiday every July 5th they can call it Dependence Day. Does the fate of the other senior Anglophone power hold broader lessons for the United States? Even as America's spendaholic government outspends not only America's ability to pay for itself, but by some measures, the world's, even as it follows Britain into the dank pit, dark pit of transgenerational dependency, a failed education system, unsustainable entitlements, even as it makes less and less and mortgages its future to its rivals for cheap Chinese trinkets, most Americans assume that simply because they're American, they will be insulated from the consequences. Permanence is the illusion of every age. You think the laws of God will be suspended in favor of America because you were born in it, he writes, great convulsions lie ahead, and at the end of it we may be in a post-Anglosphere world. And that's basically the, the gist of his argument, or his case. You know, he's, he's talking about having done away with want in the welfare state of Britain. This is possibly the greatest evil of the welfare state. Doing away with want is not its purpose. You know, it's not, that was not the idea. Want is what life is all about. Want is what gives people purpose to living. If you don't want anything, if you want nothing in life, you're probably not that happy if you've got nothing that you want to work for. You're either very content or very sad, or you've already got everything that, you've, that you, quote, want. So certainly, and if you earn it and you get it on your own, that is where the essence of life is, not being provided with things that you, quote, want by others who might not want to even provide you with those things. But that's the big picture. Now, what's happening on the smaller picture? You may not, a lot of you may not be aware of this, but not just here in Canada, but, you know, you've heard of human rights commissions and political correctness, and, of course, we have our own people from Ann Coulter, Mark Stein, a whole host of people that have been, and who have been on this show, in fact, who have been brought before human rights commissions and various issues like that, who are, in effect, being prevented from discussing the collapse of our civilization in many ways because of what they see as the causes. One of those people is a fellow named Lars Hedegaard. Now, Lars Hedegaard actually appeared on Just Right back on September 30th. I don't know if you listen to that show, but you can get it on uh, justrightmedia.org. And um, at that time, he was calling from Philadelphia with Lars Vilks when his speech was canceled there due to uh, security concerns over a cartoon. Incidentally, that was the same show that Rory Leishman appeared on. So if you're checking it online, it's Just Right 171, and you can hear that interview. And Lars Hedegaard is, is an author and founder of the Free Press Society in Denmark. And on January 24, 2011, uh, this past Monday, he was being tried under Denmark's law against the expression of hate speech. And I'm reading from a blog by Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever published on the 22nd, where he explains the situation and, and describes the situation under which uh, Lars Hedegaard is finding himself. And he apparently is uh, being charged under hate speech provisions for having stated that Muslim families, quote, and this is pretty heavy, 
raped their own children, end quote, and for thereby expressing contempt for a group defined by its faith. And he points out, note contrary to opinion, Muslim is a reference to one's religious beliefs, not to one's genetic makeup, which is always interesting. Um, I was wondering if you had a white Muslim, would they make that a racist <laughs> a racist charge if you were saying something against him? I don't know. Of course, Hedegaard has since explained that he did not intend to imply that all Muslim families engage in such conduct. Indeed, Hedegaard and all but the most ignorant of individuals take it as a given that rape does not happen in all Muslim families. And clearly neither Hedegaard nor any except the most unjust in society think it is right morally to condemn a family for a crime that none of its members have committed. Yet as insulting and as offensive as Hedegaard's statement was to people who did not give him the benefit of the doubt, the fact of the matter is that his punishment is not truly sought because it expressed a falsehood, offended Muslims, or turned anyone against Muslims. His punishment, argues McKeever, is sought because he dared to think and judge for himself. And by doing so, he wittingly or unwittingly attacked the foundations of collectivism, which is basically the real evil here. Lars Hedegaard is not being tried for hurting the feelings of Muslims, writes McKeever. He's being tried for publicly rejecting moral relativism and radical skepticism. He's being tried for holding the collectivists and their attack on reason and morality in contempt. And here he explains that, and by the way, we can go back to, to Lars's situation too. You know, the reason he got into all this trouble was amazingly because he was brought under attack, you know, in the blogs and, and in all the popular media over on his side of the world, in Denmark. And uh, he says, you know, in Denmark, you're free to make any accusation as long as you make sure to describe the accused as a member of a rabid right-wing swamp, <laughs> so to speak. And he got, he actually became a target of uh, what he calls a radical libertarian worldview from, from someone named Olkberg Olsen, who's the editor-in-chief of 180 Greater, which you can get at www.180greater.dk, a news aggregation and opinion website with a radical libertarian worldview, which apparently asserts that as a free society, we neither have nor should want the means to prevent what is happening to Western society. And of course, he thinks that's very different. He says what he makes clear in his interview, and, he, and you can go on, online and look any of this stuff up and hear it all for yourself, is that Islam, the religion or the ideology, if you will, contains a declaration of war against everyone who will not bow before its divinely ordained duty to rule everywhere. That this duty is part and parcel of Islam is beyond discussion. In the eyes of these, I guess, libertarians, we can, we can put them as, he says, pointing out this highly interesting feature of Muhammad's worldview const constitutes a declaration of war against Islam. In other words, whoever repeats what Muslim scholars have said throughout 1,400 years about their own plans and religious duty becomes responsible for the wars that Muhammad ordered Muslims to wage against anyone who would not bow to his totalitarian system. So even though their holy books are full of exhortations to war, and even though history shows that these exhortations have been put into practice, it is all our fault, he, he says. Now, of course, this all has to do with collectivism, and we'll be getting into that in a bigger way shortly. But as Paul McKeever explains, and you can find this on his uh, website, on his uh, blog site as well, um, collective is merely another way of saying government. Collectivists are simply individuals who want government to take wealth by force or by the threat of force from those who've created that wealth and to give it to those who did not. That's all it is. 
A collectivist does not want his decisions, indecisions, actions, or omissions to have any consequences. He does not want the wealth he obtains to be based on what he's earned or upon what he personally deserves. Accordingly, collectivists are opponents of all moral codes and of morality itself. One of the main ways collectivists create the false impression of wrongful gain is to exploit the nature of non-chosen qualities of individuals, things over which one has no power of choice, such as one's own genetic makeup or place of birth. Ethics, on the other hand, deals only with the chosen. Hence, the collectivist's obsession with the non-chosen qualities of human beings. In particular, many of them, notably the multiculturalists, deem humanity to be split into collectives defined by such non-chosen factors as race, sex, or place of birth. Hate speech laws aim to discourage the belief that it's possible for one person to be more deserving than another. They aim to discourage the belief that there is such a thing as an objective true code of moral conduct. Consider that in many of such codes, truth is not a defense. No matter how much evidence Hedegaard might tender to support an allegation about sexual abuse in Muslim families, all of it would be irrelevant. Truth is not a defense to a hate speech charge because the truth, according to collectivists, cannot be known. No person can be certain of anything no matter how much evidence is tendered. Hate speech codes also tend to include a very special instance of the chosen qualities of a person, one's faith. One can choose to have a faith or not to have it, and one can choose what to believe on faith, i.e. one can choose one religion over another. And of course, as Ayn Rand points out, one must choose to think as well, to reason, just as one must choose not to think, which is what we were talking about in a couple of weeks past. So why do collectivists include faith along with all the non-chosen qualities like genetic makeup? Well, says McKeever, the answer is that beliefs founded on faith are by definition beliefs you can't prove. With physical evidence, that's for certain. So faith-based beliefs, therefore, are the best evidence that they have for claiming that you can't be certain of anything. From a collectivist perspective, to condemn beliefs founded on faith is to condemn the notion that one cannot be certain of anything and to have contempt for those who hold beliefs founded only on faith is to have contempt for collectivism and its rejection of the ability to know and judge, end quote. And, of course, I think uh, Lars Hedegaard is also being tried for the same reason that the Christian pastor in Florida was censured for daring to burn the Koran late, late last year. He's not the problem. Those he judges and criticizes are the problem. And the problem is the demonstrated intolerance of Islam towards criticism and judgment. And that is a large part of the big issue. Another person that made the news big time on this, and apparently might be off the hook right now, but that was... Geert Wilders, and we'll be talking about Geert Wilders after the break at the bottom of the hour, but first you're going to be hearing a little discussion on the subject of Geert Wilders that was aired on CTS Michael Corrin's show. Oh, I guess this would be in October, November. I don't have an exact date, but that would have to be the time because that's when all this was going on. On this side of the break, we'll be hearing Michael Corrin speaking to David Menzies, and on the other side to Marianne Mead Ward, whom I shall identify. Well, David Menzies, he's a freelance writer. Marianne Mead Ward is a journalist and uh, apparently a community organizer. So we'll listen to them and after the break, and having heard that, we shall continue with our discussion today. Geert Wilders, Dutch politician, um, says they're controversial far-right. Really? I don't think he's far-right. I think a man's libertarian. I think he's very liberal on, on issues of uh, sexuality. Uh, a man who spent two years 
living in Israel, certainly not anti-Semitic, he's not part of the far right. Uh, he believes that Islam is directly contrary to the liberties that uh, Europeans, Dutch people in particular, uh, have enjoyed for some years. Get Wilders. He may be coming to Canada. Uh, we've been promised an interview with him, and indeed I, I would certainly uh, enjoy that, a one-hour interview with this man. It doesn't mean I agree with him on everything, but it's that old thing called freedom of speech, you see, and he should be allowed to speak his mind. Uh, he uh, showed his movie at the House of Lords, the upper chamber. It's a bicameral system in the UK, of course, like our Senate, but uh, uh, better dressed. Uh, last week, he was there to screen his anti-Islam movie and denounce the religion as totalitarian and incompatible with democracy. So Geert Wilders says things about Islam which are very provocative. Thing is, I've heard many Muslim leaders say the same thing. I've heard them say that our religion is not compatible with democracy. I've heard them say it's authoritarian, we do believe in absolutism, and, 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 and so what, he's echoing other people, he quotes from the Quran. this is done, of course, uh, out of context, uh, about the, the Bible constantly. You don't have to agree with the man, but the idea of saying you must be silent, and always pretending he's of the far right, he's not in any way a neo-Nazi, Holocaust denier, uh, authoritarian, he simply believes that Islam is an issue. It is, though, very provocative and very offensive to many law-abiding, peaceful, moderate Western Muslim people. They're hurt by it. Well, yeah, but isn't that the beauty of democracy and freedom of speech and freedom of expression, Michael, that you can get out onto a platform and say things that, God forbid, some people might not agree with or some people would take offense to. You know, and, and I think it speaks to, I mean, this is a, an elected member of the Dutch Parliament that was originally denied entry into the UK. And this is the same country where you will find radicalized mosques spouting all kinds of hateful, vile sermons about, you know, Jews and, and what have you. And so it speaks to the double standard. But hold on, you'll also find in Britain many mosques that condemn that sort of attitude and they claim their life is made all the more difficult by Geert Wilders. Well, I don't know how it's made more difficult by Geert Wilders. Because, I think, I think it, because it radicalizes other Muslims who say, look, if that's what they think of us, then forget moderation, we'll just become extreme. Oh, I don't think this is radicalizing anyone, Mike. I think the radicalization has, that, that horse has left the barn years ago. This guy is just blowing the whistle and bringing attention to it. You know, I mean, the idea, I mean, if, if, you, if Geert Wilders was speaking out, uh, taking a total opposite viewpoint, do you think that would lead to less radicalization? I don't think so. calling for the Quran to be banned, if, if I understand the story correctly, and yet he's complaining about his own uh, limits on freedom of speech. That's highly ironic. Do you not think? Well, if, he, if he's allowed to criticize the Quran, and we can debate whether he is actually inciting uh, trouble, then the Quran should be allowed to exist on its own right. No, no, isn't that the same argument that, that applies to human rights commissions and hate laws, that sometimes you suppress certain freedoms to allow a greater liberty? I don't think the Quran should be banned. I think it's an absurd idea. Uh, he's but being provocative. He's, but that's what he's calling for. So yes, well. he is being provocative. So at what point, and this is where the debate is, at what point does somebody who is just trying to encourage vigorous debate and be provocative in that way, at what point do you cross the line to actually causing the kind of uh, violence or well, let's unhelpful let's get, some, let's get some context here. I think this is important because this is the Netherlands, which is very proud of, it, of its sense of, I think, too much freedom and mm -hmm. almost anarchy at times. This is where a man 
is, is murdered like an animal in the middle of the street. He, yeah, his it's throat horrible. Cut. This is where there are the anti-Semitism the on fault? the rise is the first that, time in generations because Muslim attacks on Jews. Is that the fault of the entire religion? Or is well, that the fault, not the fault of, of the Boy Scouts or, or the Rotary Club, is, is it? That the well, is, 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 Christi the okay, is oh, Christianity to go. blame for Jim Jones? No, but yeah, yeah, yeah it is, Mary. No, no, just one second. That is yeah. the point. Mary, it, it, it is, it is. You're right. No, you're quite right. You're right. You're right. You know what? It's absolutely right. It's right. My baldness, my obesity, it's all the fault of Christianity. You know, Mary, the reason I get tired of this is because it's just so anti-intellectual. Look, no one is saying all Muslims are, but the one uniting factor around attacks on cartoonists, movie makers being slaughtered, gays being hanged, Jews being attacked, it's not Christianity, it's not, but it is people who do support a radical form of Islam. Radical, Why are you so frightened of form. saying it? Radical, there are no Muslims in your writing. That is absolutely but, what needs to be distinguished. It's a fundamental radicalized We do every time this of, is mentioned, we do, but it's but, never so, enough for people like you. But he is not, and this is my problem with Mr. Wilders, is that he is not distinguishing between people who ab abuse and distort you haven't, you the obviously Quran. Haven't read him. Yeah. You haven't read him there. Seen the movie. If he's calling for the entire book to be banned, therefore it means that none of us he reasonable said, people can look at it and but, say, you know what, it, okay. it actually calls, he it said actually that, our passages around He said peace. that to open up the debate. And you know what? There well, are, of course he did. But and there are people who say far worse things about Christianity frequently, and they're never condemned, and they're never banned from countries. Wow. Hot debate on the Michael Corrin Show. And right now you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. And you can see how it goes. You know, we're almost our own worst enemy. Tolerance of intolerance. And despite what she was saying, Marianne Mead Ward was really not so much objecting to Geert Wilders as she was to his attack on collectivism, because that's what she is. She's clearly a collectivist. By the way, Geert Wilders did not call for a ban on the Koran. The whole context of this is that in Holland, where he is, they have already banned Mein Kampf for the same reasons that he's talking about what's in the Koran. And all he was saying was, look, if you're going to ban that book, then ban this one too, cause they've, or unban the other one, which is the statement I was taking all the time. And, uh, you know, Mark Stein, again, in the same article that we were quoting from in the opening part of the show, he wrote this too. He says, quote, Not long ago, Geert Wilders, a Dutch parliamentarian and swa-distant Islamophobe flew into London and promptly got shipped back to the Netherlands as a threat to public order. After the British government had re reconsidered its stupidity, he was permitted to return and give his speech at the House of Lords, and as foreigners often do, he quoted Winston Churchill under the touchingly naive assumption that this would endear him to the natives. Whereas, of course, to almost all members of Britain's governing elite, quoting Churchill approvingly only confirms that you are an extreme lunatic. I had the honor a couple of years back, writes Stein, of visiting Pres President Bush in the White House and seeing the bust of Churchill on display at the Oval Office. When Barack Obama moved in, he ordered Churchill's bust be removed and returned to the British. Its present whereabouts are unclear, but given that Sir Winston, or sorry, given what Sir Winston had to say about Islam in his book on the Sudanese campaign, the bust was almost certainly arrested at Heathrow and deported as a threat to public order. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, a quintessentially essentially British sense of self-depreciation curdled into a psychologically unhealthy self-loathing, he writes. 
And of course, the National Post back on October 5th reported out of Brussels at Geert Wilders, and they describe him as an anti-Islamic politician, told the Dutch court that he's going to stand by his opinions. And it says uh, he's being prosecuted for describing the Koran as fascist and for comparing it with Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, which is banned in the Netherlands. That's the point. Wilders urged that like Nazism, Islamic ideology has to be defeated. Mr. Wilders, 47, told the court, I'm sitting here as a suspect because I've broken nothing, but I've spoken nothing but the truth. I've said what I've said, and I will not take one word back. I can assure you, he says, I will continue proclaiming it. And Mr. Wilders also accused the Dutch authorities of putting on trial the 1.5 million voters who backed his, quote, anti-immigration freedom party during the June elections. Now, they aren't that, but it just gives you an idea of how we're our own worst enemies. Here's one of these articles out of The, out of the Economist that talks about why Geert Wilders is a problem and not a solution, written by Charlemagne. False Prophet, it's titled, October 9th, 2010. And he says, uh, Geert Wilders, leader of the anti-immigrant freedom party, is on trial for incitement to hatred and discrimination against Muslims. The court heard some of Mr. Wilders' greatest hits. The Koran is the mind comf of a religion that intends to eliminate others, 2007. Islam wants to control, subdue, and is out for the destruction of Western civilization, 2008. The Koran, stripped of its hateful verses, should actually have the format of a Donald Duck comic book, 2007. The judge's questions were comically innocent. Did Mr. Wilders really say such things? Was it in the heat of the moment? Had he received legal advice? Did he really need to refer to Donald Duck? Stubborn silence. Wilders has become a political kingmaker. His party came in third in last year's June general election, winning 15% of the vote and now props up a minority government of the liberal VVD with its center-right Christian Democrats. In exchange for a promise of tighter immigration rules, a ban on some Islamic garb, and for more money, or more money for care for the elderly. Mr. Wilder's party is only one of many anti-immigrant and anti-Islam groups that are gaining ground in northern European countries, previously known for their liberal social attitudes. Now here is, in the same article after what you just heard, listen to what the same writer writes. Mr. Wilders should not be underestimated. By identifying the enemy as Islam and not foreigners, and by casting his rhetoric in terms of freedom rather than of race, he becomes harder to label as a reactionary, racist, or neo-Nazi. Mr. Wilders does not want to associate with the fascist sort. He has no truck with anti-Semitism and fervently supports Israel. He is, for want of a better term, a radical liberal, thank you very much, not libertarian, as Michael Korn suggested. He defends women's emancipation and gay rights. He is fighting to defend the West's liberties. The enemy is Islam, not Muslims, he says, which seeks violently to destroy them. Americans and Europeans should be wary of embracing Mr. Wilders. To expose violent Islamist ideology is legitimate, even necessary. To attack Islam in the Koran is dangerous stupidity that weakens the civilization Mr. Wilders claims to defend. How long can he keep telling the world to ban the Koran? Which, of course, he's not saying. He's just pointing out to the hypocrisy of a country that's putting him on trial for saying what he's saying and that has already banned um, Mein Kampf. You, you can see the whole silliness of it. But this whole issue of, of, of hate literature and of uh, censorship, certainly nothing new. And I was on a show some, wow, 11 years ago now, can't believe it. 
This, what we're going to hear next in this next break is uh, also from CTS. Um, I was interviewed twice in five days, amazingly. On this side of the bumper from a November 10th, 2000 broadcast of Rhonda London Live, and on the other side of the bumper five days later from the same show. We were talking about censorship and hate literature, and here's how that went. Welcome back to Rhonda London Live. Today we're talking about censorship, which really has a negative connotation these days. With his thoughts on all of this, we're joined in studio by Robert Metz. He's a founding member of the Freedom Party of Ontario. Robert, thank you so much for joining Hello, us. How are you? And we should say right from the beginning that you were very much opposed to censorship of any kind. Absolutely. Why? Um, well, in a free society, censorship is totally unacceptable. Censorship I personally regard as being... Uh, evil. I'll go that far as to say it's evil. Um, censorship has been with us, of course, for, for many thousands of years. I've always regarded, for example, the crucifixion of Christ as an act of censorship, which is exactly what it was. The state enforcing its power on somebody because of what that person was saying, not what they were doing, mm -hmm. but what they were saying, and because it was not in accordance with the community standards of the time. And so I don't want to repeat that history. And that history has repeated itself many, many times. That any society that has censorship invariably leads to an, an abuse of that process. Well, actually, though, um, the crucifixion of Christ, it wasn't just what he was saying. It, it was also what he was doing. Well, to a point, but basically it was his message that was mm -hmm. totally in conflict with the standards of the time. And essentially, you know, censorship doesn't just stop at one person's point of view. There's many things that I have to agree with, you know, much of what I heard, things that are offensive to people or things that are unacceptable or personally, you know, not in, you know, sync with what one person may think. But I would never think of imposing my standards and my views and values on someone else. Now, children is another matter. Mm -hmm. And when I'm referring to censorship, I mean of one adult to another adult. And I just don't think that... No matter how far you stretch it, I have no right to impose my views on you, nor do you on me, and that's the, the social contract we have between us to live in a free society. And, but your uh, choice to view material, or, or even your opinion, how trustworthy is that if you've been totally desensitized by a lifetime of watching uh, explicit material? Well, what does it matter if I'm desensitized, as long as I'm not hurting anyone? In, in a free society, what we, what we ban in human relationships is the use of force and coercion. We never ban ideas. Um, there are many ideas out there that are extremely harmful to society, and most of them are political. And you're hearing them right now in the middle of this election, okay? I happen to think a lot of what we hear, if, I mean, if I were the censor of the world, I'd be out there shutting up a lot of people I disagree with. A lot of politicians. But, but, but the issue is that, you know, censorship kind of, kind of says that, well, I don't have a good response to this argument, so that instead of offering an alternative to your point of view, I'm going to shut you up. And that's what basically happens in issues like hate literature. I, I could never understand why we want to censor hate literature. I say expose it, let the people who are enunciating it uh, enunciate all they want and offer a response. That's, that's the approach we always take. Um, to say that all you can do is shut them up means that I have no answer to racist comments and racist literature and things like that, which I do. And then I'm not even allowed to exercise that because my freedom will be compromised in the same process. So I'd rather see an open discussion and, and, and uh, an allowance of all kinds of things within a context of individual freedom. My freedoms end where your nose begins kind of thing. And uh, I have no right to impose any values on you or force you to watch anything you don't want to watch.
And also, let's remember that the state that did all those things to the Jews in World War II was a state that believed in censorship, that believed in community standards, that believed in, in, you know, in doing the very things that we should be avoiding today. If you don't give the state that power, then all the racists and hate mongers in the world will never have any power. Do you think then it's a slippery slope that if, if I start denying, let's say, free speech to a neo-Nazi or a white supremacist group, sure. What's then it's the next? conservative who's going to be on the hate list next. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, Canadian Alliance people are being labeled hate mongers constantly. And mm -hmm. what are they actually saying? You get labeled a hate monger in this country if you suggest that people of different races should all be treated equally before and under the law. Because some people believe certain racial groups should have special status, which to me is racism. So am I not allowed to express that disagreement? Because in a society that's being projected by people who want to do away with things, mm -hmm. I won't be allowed to say a lot of those things. Robert, do you think, because Canada prides itself on being a tolerant nation, do you think in the name of tolerance we are actually becoming the exact opposite, that we're becoming intolerant? Because tolerance has come to mean that we all have to agree, where in reality it should mean that we're free to disagree. I agree, and, 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 and that's exactly true what you're saying. It's come to mean in Canada that you have free speech as long as you agree with the majority. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you have a strong opinion that's different from the majority, um, all of a sudden you shouldn't have freedom of speech. Well, freedom of speech is there to protect particularly the people who have the most vile opinions to express, who have uh, the least popular point of view. And I think you'll find, too, that in every jurisdiction where disgusting and unpopular views are suppressed, they tend to rise quicker, which, by the way, is exactly what happened in Germany before the war. Uh, the Nazi opinion was being suppressed by the previous regime until it, you know, when people see something suppressed, they think there's something attractive there. Whereas if no one's paying attention to it and it's just run-of-the-mill, uh, like, I can't see any value in a hate site. I've tried to look at some of them, and there's just nothing there that, that would interest me. Well, it, is, it excites the sin principle. It's, if I tell you not to touch that glass yeah. of water, mm -hmm. the first thing you're going to want to do is... Just touch is that to, glass of water. Exactly. <laughs> That's human nature. Let's go to Jeff on line five. Go ahead, Jeff. You're on the air. Hi. Um, Hi, Jeff. Hi. I just want to uh, agree with, with what the, with what the uh, guest has said. Mm -hmm. um, in theory, I don't think we should be... Uh, we shouldn't be trying to legislate against uh, any of these freedoms. And then, and practically, what he said about um, anything that becomes suppressed, all of a sudden it, it's given undue attention. Two thousand in the year two thousand. That was from the Ronda London Live show. And, uh, you know, a couple of comments I had to make in addition to that was um, she brought up an interesting point about, um, you know, Christ wasn't just preaching. Well, in, in fact, that's actually what happened. The reason Christ was put on the cross was as an act of injustice. It was all through Pontius Pilate who condemned Christ and they, they threw him to the wolves, the wolves being the public mood at the time. And, uh, you know, that's why Christ was quoted with saying, you know, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do, because that's the same situation we're in today. This whole story is a political story. And the reason that racism is on the rise, such as it is, and we're discussing, is precisely because we have governments who are creating special status for different groups 
on the basis of race, whether it's the aboriginals, whether we have to be doubly sensitive. Now, remember she asked me, you know, are we being desensitized? That was always the call of the, of the censor because what they want to do is make everyone very sensitive. You're going to be so sensitive to everything that when you hear a comment that you're not used to hearing, you're going to go nuts and then we can control the situation. And I, I, I absolutely despise that ar- argument. Uh, you should be desensitized. You should not be affected by everything someone says. You should be able to think on your own, think independently, and think free of that. Uh, you know, and then of course there's the, remember, remember, that was actually aired in 2000, and at that time the Canadian Alliance was in existence, and didn't, isn't that exactly what happened, what I predicted there? All of the attacks are always towards the right on freedom of speech. The Conservatives find themselves under attack, and by the way, yours truly is in that situation as well constantly, and we'll be talking a little bit about more of that, more of that in the future. But the basic situation is that I don't think we should be banning anything. I think we should be exposing hate literature. We're not talking about anything to do with libel and issues of that um, uh, nature. Only truth is ever censored in the big picture. And, you know, I recall reading Ayn Rand, and she always says, you know, when do you know that you are entering an era where you are getting into a situation of what we might call dictatorship? She says, one of the clearest signs is when censorship appears. She says, almost anything else can go bad, but if you've got censorship, you're almost at the end of the game, if you want to put it that way. So what's the answer? I don't know. I can't, I'm not going to give you your answer, but, you know, last week we talked about artificial intelligence and how robots and androids are only capable of actions pre-programmed into their memory or programmed storage units. Well, in a similar way, human beings are only capable of actions pre-programmed into their minds, which we talked about last week. Although with human beings, of course, there's a big difference. Unlike androids and robots, which are programmed by human beings, we have to choose our own programming. And in so doing, we live with the consequences of the actions that derive from that programming. And in human beings, that programming is generally referred to as a philosophy. And every individual, whether conscious of it or not, operates on an explicit philosophy that has a name and can be identified. By the time an individual reaches his adulthood, uh, his or her philosophy was programmed either by themselves or by someone else. And the validity of a philosophy can only be verified or judged against two external objective standards, and that's reality and reason. When too many people stray from a rational objective viewpoint on life, well, bad things start to happen. If gone unchecked, the very pillars of civilization are threatened. So let's repeat it once more before we leave you today. A civilized nation is one in which the initiation of force against any individual by another or by the government is legally prohibited and legally enforced when that code of behavior is violated. To be civilized requires two primary ingredients, freedom and capitalism, which is a separation of the state and economics. So, you know, freedom and capitalism, and therefore civilization, are ultimately incompatible with all forms of collectivism. Fascism, communism, socialism, or any variant or shade of any form of these wealth confiscation, not distribution programs, please, and any restriction on freedom for political purpose, those kinds of schemes. So that's, that's basically where we're at. We have to be in a situation of freedom. We have to allow and be tolerant of 
opinions we don't like. But we don't have to be intolerant <laughs> of intolerance itself in the terms of crossing that line where one initiates force. Um, you know, generally I've been saying right wing and left wing are only distinguished from from how they prefer to initiate force. And of course today they're almost the same. But we'll carry that conversation on next time around. But for today we've got to leave and we've got to get out of here right now. So we hope you'll join us again next week when Robert Vaughn will be back with us. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. And this person asked me if I was ever stuck on a desert island. I was on a radio talk show and the presenter asked me if I was ever stuck on a desert island, what two books would I bring with me? And I didn't like the threat implied in that question. And I said to her, the first book I'd bring with me would be a big plastic inflatable book. And the second one would be how to make oars out of sand. Now leave me alone. I shut her up.